Hello, everyone. This is another episode of the Unisoft Question, a YouTube show and podcast about lawyers as human beings and their work a little bit. So today we have definitely a human being, a fantastic lawyer that I've known for years. His name is Peter Karianis. And uh, without further ado, hello, Peter. How are you today? I'm very well, Pilar. Thank you very much. How are you today? I'm good. I'm good. Uh, you know, uh, w uh, granted that uh, the world is uh, in trouble as a whole, uh, I think I can say that I'm good. I get this uh, wonderful chance to speak with amazing people about once a week and share the, these interviews with the world. And you're one of them. So thank you so much for coming. Well, I want kind of you to say so. Thank you. <laughs> No problem. I want to ask you a strange question up front. So I looked at your LinkedIn profile and I was shocked by the number of recommendations that you received on LinkedIn. So, I mean, I look at LinkedIn profiles all the time and you have 34 recommendations. That's a lot by LinkedIn standards because it means you had to get 34 people to write something, sign their name to it. And, you know, all of these people, they're pretty important people. What can I say? You also gave 29 recommendations. So you also took time to write recommendations on LinkedIn. What do you have to say about this? Uh, well, I, first of all, um, I don't even know that I've looked at that for a little while. So uh, this is a great question. This is certainly not where I start, thought we'd start off. Uh, what do I have to say? Uh, I'll start at the back and work my way forward on this. Um, it doesn't, uh, I, I never counted them. I honestly had never counted them. So that's news to me that the, that, that was the number um, or, or that even that that's a lot by LinkedIn standards. But I definitely knew that I had, uh, I had some recommendations. And I also know that I made a conscious effort, certainly when anybody would ask for uh, any kind of feedback or any kind of a recommendation, I always made them. There's, um, there's a great book that I read a few years ago. It's called The Go-Giver. Um, and in this book, uh, which I would strongly recommend to anybody that uh, might be looking for, uh, for a, a very um, lighthearted, easy to read and easy to digest business book, but told in the manner of a story uh, that just has some really strong truths. But the Go-Giver turns up upside down the idea of a go-getter. You know, you're out there in business and you're a hustler and you're a go-getter. And what the story is, is, is you really, you know, what you get is actually what you give, which is, isn't that a Beatles song, right? Uh, we've got that lesson from Paul McCartney and John Lennon many, many years ago and set to a beautiful song. But one of the interesting points is that um, for the circle to be complete between giving and getting, you have to also be able and willing to receive something from somebody else just as easily as you're willing to give something to somebody else, whether that's a gift or a recommendation or feedback. And a lot of times it's harder um, to receive. You know, people feel embarrassed. Uh, you feel like you don't deserve it. You feel like you didn't earn it. You feel like, you know, it's okay. You don't have to do anything. But when you do that, you are actually denying the other person, the moment where they are expressing a generosity to you. And when I read that, uh, it really struck me um, that, that that instinct that you think that comes from a, a good place to say, you don't need to, I don't need that. You don't need to give it to me. It's okay. I, you know, is actually a little bit selfish in its own way because it denies the other person that opportunity. And so I had never thought about this before you asked the question, but I, I think probably the reason why the number of recommendations and the number of, uh, that I've received and the number that I've given is so closely is that um, I probably made a point of trying to give recommendations as much as getting recommendations, and I tried it to complete that circle. I, I don't know if that's true or not, um, but that's my story today, and I'm sticking to it. And, you know, I'm looking at the people who gave you recommendations. They certainly don't just drop recommendations around. Uh, president and CEO, VP, partner, general counsel, managing direct, director. Like, this is the caliber of people who took time to write uh, good things about you. And uh, I want to work our way to this moment in time where so many people of power and influence were willing to say, 
good things about you and to recommend you. And I want to start with your origins. I think you're from Toronto, if I am not mistaken, correct? Yeah, born and raised, local boy. And I'm looking at uh, your high school. This is why I figured out. Uh, I don't know if it's high school. Yeah, it's high school. St. Joseph's High School. Yeah, Michael Power, St. Joe's. Go Power. What neighborhood did you grow up in? Uh, that high school is in Etobicoke. It still is in Etobicoke. And I grew up, uh, it, like many things in my life, interestingly enough, I sort of, I grew up on the boundary between Etobicoke and Mississauga. Anybody that is uh, getting this podcast or this uh, interview locally would know that for for people out of the area, the uh, Etobicoke and Mississauga would be, if you will, the inner suburbs of the city of Toronto. Um, but, uh, but you know, right on the line where so uh, at that time, um, there was still a lot of undeveloped farmland in parts of it or not very far away. You could drive for a few minutes and be in an apple orchard, literally. In fact, the, the home that I, I, that I grew up in, I was born in High Park. That's where my parents lived, uh, just a few blocks away from High Park. But the house that I lived in was a redevelopment from an orchard, uh, a fruit orchard. And uh, even while I was growing up, there were still, they had taken the time, built, can you imagine? They would never do this now. They just raised the whole thing. But the developer had taken the time to protect apple trees on people's homes. Not everybody, but when I was growing up, there were still apple trees and peach trees and cherry trees that were... Uh, part of the original orchard when they bought it from the farmer but so I grew up in Mississauga Etobicoke and I kind of had a foot in both camps so at the time in Mississauga we were uh, running wild going up and down the creeks and ravines on the weekend and uh, and then I could hop on the subway and uh, in a few minutes be all the way in downtown Toronto. So why does a boy who grew up uh, in the in an inner suburb in Toronto had a chance to see some of the uh, uh, history of the city because uh, a parent's house was on a farmer's orchard. How, how, how did this boy decide to go into a political science program at U of T for his <laughs> undergrad? Um, probably, probably my argumentative nature took me there. Uh, and uh, how close political science might be to politics in general. So I've been active in politics my entire life. I was on student council in high school and student council in university and student council in, uh, in law school or the, when I, I was the president of the, uh, of the, of the student body. Um, the, that's always attracted me. Politics in general has always attracted me. Um, and. I've always felt, once I was exposed to political science as a subject matter, uh, I felt like political science in many respects was history taught properly. Uh, and, and maybe it was just the, my experience of how I learned history. Uh, but you know, it's, it's interesting how you put that. You know, here I was a boy that had, had been exposed to parts of the city, the development of the city, the changing parts of the city. And, and that is something that fascinates me always, anytime, anywhere, whether it's in Toronto or any other part of the world, where I can find uh, lines that take us back in history, roots of the city, stories in the city. I'm always very interested in that. But I think my experience with history as a student and as a subject was that it was very linear. And uh, political science as a subject that I learned was more dynamic. So more things coming together uh, to touch that line uh, because, because that's the way it is. I mean, we, you know, we study history as a subject um, and you know, 500 years from now, somebody might be studying, well, 500 years from now, somebody guaranteed will be studying the pandemic and what we've lived. And we, you know, the last 12 months, we can definitely create a line and say, you know, March 12th, 2020 and March 12th, 2021, and we can create a line, but we don't experience None of us have experienced that as a straight linear thing. It's things have come in from different worlds, different uh, or different uh, countries rather, not different worlds, but different countries, different environments, different socioeconomic levels. Uh, what I am experiencing now as a pandemic with my wife 
and my three children, and we live in Etobicoke now, very close to where where I went to high school, uh, and that was not necessarily by design, but you know, certainly the roots of that are there. Uh, but what we've experienced as the pandemic is not necessarily what has been experienced in the pandemic in the long-term care home that is literally not a five-minute drive from my front door. I, in fact, I could bicycle there uh, in probably 10 or 15 minutes. Um, and if we were to go to North Etobicoke, uh, which is an entirely different socioeconomic uh, part of the city relative to Central Etobicoke, uh, that would be a different experience of the pandemic. And so I've I gravitated towards political science because I think my experience with political science was that it was a more dynamic uh, and fluid interpretation of what happened in a particular historical setting. Does that make sense? It makes a lot of sense. You had a gap year, didn't you, after your undergrad? Uh, I had the better part of a gap year, yeah. I, I, I deferred law school for a period, I did. Not a full year, but I was able to defer my admission, the school that I went to in Michigan State, in, uh, which was at the time in Detroit, Michigan, um, they, they started their classes in two cohorts. They had an, uh, a fall cohort or August. Uh, they started the third week of August um, and, and then a January cohort. And I was able to defer that uh, to January and, uh, and start then. So it wasn't a complete gap year, but it allowed me to work. Why did you go to law school in the U.S.? What's wrong with Osgood, UFT, Queens, Windsor? Uh, nothing's wrong with any of them. Um, uh, I think uh, it would probably be uh, better to look at my approach to the admissions process at any of those law schools the first time around. And in fairness, it might be uh, my approach to my academic performance in undergrad and what that might have looked like to the admissions committee at Osgood the first time around. I... Um, so I went to I went to law school in the states. I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do uh, as a lawyer, and you know that it would actually be a little while before I even any of that came into focus. Uh, but I did like the idea of international relations. I did like the idea of international trade and commerce. I didn't really know what that meant. A lot of people in law school say they want to do something international, but you know what what does that really mean? Uh, and uh, Michigan State offered a program in Canadian studies, and they were based in Detroit, and you know. A minute ago, uh, you already touched on it, and and uh, I really would never want to be cross-examined by you in, in in real life because you, I think you've intuited something there. But you know, I grow up, I grew up in uh, suburban Toronto, but on the boundary between two cities, um, and I ultimately ended up in law school on the boundary between two countries. I lived in Windsor, and I went to school in Detroit uh, for two out of the three years. And in the third year of law school, I, I moved to Michigan. But I have found myself at so many junctures in my life to have a foot in two camps. Even my background, my father's Greek, my mother's Irish. Uh, I have a foot in two cultures um, because of that, because of my family background. So I, I was attracted to the, uh, the Canadian Studies Center at Michigan State. Um, I was attracted to uh, the prospect of, of learning the American legal system. So, you know, as Canadians, we're, uh, you know, obviously we, we sleep next to the elephant uh, and, uh, and we absorb and understand so much of American, um, the American political system, the American legal system, American culture, and we just get it by osmosis or we get it through um, consuming mass media. Uh, but it was attractive to me to actually go and learn it uh, on, directly. It, and ultimately, I was really attracted to the idea of learning uh, in an American setting, uh, learning about the American legal system and, uh, and learning about American society that way. And, um, and it turned out to be a, a very good decision for me. It was a really... Um, it was a very rewarding educational experience. I made great friends. Uh, I learned a lot about myself and, uh, and I learned a lot about our neighbors to the South uh, by going to law school there. And then I came back and I got into Osgood Hall and I did a year at Osgood and, and became a Canadian lawyer too. I was teasing you a little bit when I asked you about uh, why, you went to the, uh, why, to, why you went to law school in the US because I went to grad school in the US and I think uh, it was a great experience, I think anyone uh, will benefit from uh, 
going to school in the U.S. Because despite what people say about all the similarities between Canada and the U.S., there are really important differences. And I think many people in Canada can benefit from looking at these differences and examining these differences. And I think there is no better place to look at them than the educational system than an American university. But, you know, another thing piqued my interest. I didn't know that your mother was Irish. <laughs> I mean, I, I knew that uh, your, I, I thought that both of your parents were Greek, right? So it's not surprising to me that your dad is Greek, but uh, an Irish mother, this is really interesting. So what, what does, what is the Irish Greek family like? This this is a really interesting mix to me. I, I never saw a Hollywood movie about this mix, so I'm not educated. <laughs> well, it's uh, it's it's pretty rare. I my sister and I uh, we're definitely two Irish Greeks that we know of, um, and uh, and I don't know of too many others. Uh, I did meet one once. Uh, it was the opposite. It was a a, a, a an Irish father and a Greek mother. Um, but it's not a common uh, combination. Um, they met here in Toronto. Uh, that is probably the most understandable part of it, uh, that they met in the 60s when, you know, em immigration from Europe was, uh, was probably at, one of, at, at its post-war peak. And, uh, and that created the, you know, the, the, the right environment for, for people to mix and meet and, and build lives together in, in this uh, in this fantastic country, in this beautiful city, um, but it's listen. You are you are by far in the majority. Most people um, assume that with a, a, a name and uh, and a look like mine, that I'm all Greek. Uh, and there's no question that uh, my Greek heritage is a, is a big part of who I am. And people certainly uh, understand that with a, a surname like Karianos. Uh, but my father was born in Greece and my mother was born in Ireland. Uh, she has four sisters there, my aunts uh, and their uncle and their husbands and my uncles. And um, uh, my cousins are all, uh, my first cousins on the Irish side, uh, all, a few of them live in England. Uh, the rest of them all live in Ireland. And uh, I'm in contact with my Irish family, um, if not weekly, several times a month. Even during the pandemic, we've t spent a lot of time uh, in touch on Zooms and FaceTimes and things like that. But uh, yeah, I have a, uh, and I'm, I'm very proud of my Irish heritage, uh, but I will say that I sometimes have to, I have to make sure that it's known because uh, people make that assumption about my background. That's great. I really love this combination. Uh, so after law school, you articled obviously where did you article? I don't think it says on your LinkedIn where you articled. Oh, that's interesting. I, it probably doesn't. I don't know. I articled at uh, the firm that's now just referred to as Gowlings. Uh, at the time that I articled uh, and when I first started there it was Gowlings, Strathy and Henderson. Uh, it shortly after that became Gowling, Lafleur, Henderson when they did the Smith Lions merger and the uh, Lafleur Brown merger, and then uh, I think now they just they everybody just calls them Gowlings. You were a Toronto young man with, uh, you said, with questionable academics in, uh, in, uh, in, um, in undergrad yes. and perhaps with a turbulent uh, childhood. The times were turbulent and the city was turbulent. You come from a really interesting uh, family, but you end up at a really blue chip white shoe elite basic firm so how did they let you in what happened i have no idea how they let me in <laughs> uh i you know honestly um i was i was very fortunate to get a chance at gowlings um the time that I was applying for an articling position was uh, I can I can never really remember what it's like now for those for those in the Canadian system they'd understand that anybody outside of Canada after we go to law school we have to uh, do a, effectively a year as an apprenticeship and it's called articling here and you apply for that at least a year in advance of finishing school so you know I. Uh, 
I was not a conventional applicant uh, to a Bay Street uh, white shoe firm like any of them. Uh, I I did go to Osgoode Hall, but really my my JD was from Michigan State. And in fact, at the time, I had a JD and everybody else had an LLD. And I had to answer that question at every single interview. What's a JD? What's a JD? What's a JD? Um, it was a few years later, as so many U of T grads and McGill grads were going to New York and Boston, that they petitioned their schools to change the LLD to a JD so that they didn't have to answer what's an LLB question when they were interviewing in New York. Um, but yeah, I, I went to Michigan State. I had a JD. I had this uh, interesting, unusual background for most applicants. And, uh, uh, and I think we can probably safely say that um, there aren't a lot of Greeks on Bay Street. And uh, while there are, are far more now, uh, there weren't that many in the 90s. And um, I think that's just a I think that's just a demographic fact. Uh, so I think they took a chance on me. Uh, I'm not sure how I got in, uh, but I felt very grateful to, to be given an interview. Uh, I can tell you that uh, I sent uh, way more applications uh, to firms than I got interviews. In fact, the, the ratio was about 10 to one. Um, I, I paid for a lot of postage at the time at the, you know, we had to do them all manually and stick them in the mail. And, uh, and I got a lot of, uh, short, uh, one paragraph letters in response. And Gowlings was one of the ones that, uh, was kind enough to take a chance and, uh, and let me come in on to the interview process. And, uh, and a few people there really, uh, I think they took me under their wing and for that, I'll be forever grateful. Uh, I still keep in touch with some of those people, um, uh, and, uh, and I'd say thanks to them as well. So I, I don't know. It was a happy accident. It was a fluke. Well, I must, I must, you know, we must give credit to Gallings. Uh, uh, it was 1996, right? Mm -hmm. It was 1996. So pretty, uh, amazing that, um, at that time, uh, someone from a diverse academic background and diverse personal background was able to work uh, at a firm like that. You worked there for seven years. I did, yeah. That's, that's right. But tell me how that work, the work at the large uh, Bay Street uh, firm for seven years, how, how did that work take you to uh, building uh, conduit law eventually? Well, um, you know, I think uh, I think there were a few things that were happened. You know, Gowlings, um, I have to give credit to them in so many respects. You know, they've, as, uh, as these things go, they've got a lot of people that have been very progressive and very innovative in the legal space. You know, I think back to the 90s and the mortgage enforcement um, uh, machine that Gowlings and, uh, you know, principally Mark Taminga uh, with other people around him, but I think I think it's probably fair to say we should give credit to Mark for being for spearheading that initiative. But it was uh, uh, it was truly modern, new work uh, in the mid '90s to create an entirely automated uh, legal process now from start to finish. And you know now it probably seems pretty boring and old-fashioned uh, to have uh, a mortgage enforcement practice attached to a law firm that's part of a bank or that works with a bank and then and have it mostly automated. But I can tell you that in the mid nineties, uh, that was not considered uh, a, a normal uh, approach to the practice. And that's a one big example, but I think Gowling's probably, I could probably think of a few more examples where there were individuals at Gowling's, there were lawyers at Gowling's that are willing to try something new. They were willing to try an alternative. Um, and, you know, they, they wouldn't have been in the majority uh, but I think that's normal for any large law firm. And if we were to look at the bell curve of early adopters to laggards, I think the same bell curve would apply to, to Gowlings. But there was definitely a group of early adopters um, who were uh, open to the conversation, who were willing to look at new ways of practicing, who thought that we could make a difference and practice in a different way. And, and those people were... Um, 
you know, if not supported, at, at least tolerated and, uh, and the conversation wasn't shut down. So I think at an early age, I was probably attracted to the idea. I know that very early on, I realized that the billable hour was, uh, uh, you know, there really ultimately are no redeeming features to practicing law with the billable hour. I know that it's the mainstream and I know that I'll probably be arguing about this until uh, well after I finish my career. Uh, and I know that uh, it's, it's like I'm tilting at windmills, uh, but it's just an awful way to live. It's an awful way to work. It's an awful way to deal with your clients. And, uh, and on that, I, I stand firm. But I recognized that very early. And uh, even though I was really steeped in that billable hour culture, like any other young associate in a big law firm, uh, I realized that there had to be a different way. And, uh, and, and that, that is what started to put me on the road to ultimately creating uh, and building conduit law. I left, when I left Gowlings in 2004, I left with an idea in mind, um, which was that I had this, I had a, a nice little practice already developing. Uh, and Gowlings was very, very encouraging of my, um, of my business development initiatives and my entrepreneurial initiatives. Um, there was a, there were a few partners in particular who actively supported me and acted, actively engage with me to help me build up some clients. But there were some of them that I realized could use a general counsel, could use an in-house lawyer, but they didn't need a full-time lawyer. Uh, they didn't need a five day a week, 52 week a year in-house counsel, but they could use somebody one day a week or two days a week. And uh, I originally got that inspiration from CAs. I learned about this idea of, of uh, CFOs for hire who were sort of aggregating a small portfolio of companies that could not individually have a CFO, but needed a CFO. And I thought, well, if we can have CFOs for hire, why not do GCs? GCs. And, uh, why not do GCs? Well, I have a general counsel for hire. And, uh, and I had a few clients uh, Peter, that I thought. Is it fair to say then that conduit law provides general counsel for hire? That's, uh, that's the core of our business. And that's probably what we're uh, most well known for. The embedded in-house counsel or the fractional general counsel, uh, the fractional lawyer, um, this concept of somebody working embedded on site, on demand with clients for a fixed fee. That, I think that's, if, uh, if I created a bullseye, a dartboard, uh, that's the bullseye of conduit law services. And, and after seven years in private practice with Gallings, you actually were general counsel at different companies for much longer than seven years even, right? Yes. So that was, and what I was doing there, uh, and I didn't know Poulet at the time, I didn't understand it, but I actually was prototyping conduit law uh, but accidentally doing it. So a lot of entrepreneurs build products for themselves first uh, before they become wildly popular. They solve um, some kind of a personal annoyance or personal um, problem. And because it's their problem, they are passionate about it. They uh, put in a lot of effort. So it sounds like conduit law was a, per, was a solution to a personal annoyance. And may I call this uh, your annoyance with a billable hour? Absolutely. So, I would agree with that completely. How long have you been waging war on billable hour, Peter? I've been waging, so, um, well, I would say uh, I've been, Formal war uh, since 2012 when I started Conduit Law and I raised the flag and uh, declared a formal war on the billable hour. But from 2004, when I left Gowlings to 2012, 11, I would characterize that as a guerrilla war. Mm -hmm. I, I want to talk about the billable hour a little bit. I know it's your favorite topic. So if not the billable hour, then what? I know you answered that question many times, but let's do it again. Well, uh, so the short answer uh, is anything other than the billable hour, really. Um, here's, 
uh, my view, and, and, and I'd be happy to debate this um, with anybody. Uh, I don't think, clients don't buy time. It's as simple as that. Uh, clients don't walk into your office. They don't walk into my office. They don't pick up the phone and say, I want an hour of your time. I want to buy an hour of your time. Clients have problems that need solutions. If they're calling a lawyer, it's because they've got a legal shaped solution, not a plumbing shaped solution or an electrical shaped solution or a cardiac shape or problem looking for a solution, right? You call the plumber, the electrician, the doctor, the lawyer, uh, based on the problem that you're experiencing. And when they want a solution to that problem, the amount of time that you expend on giving that, them that solution is entirely irrelevant. It's as though you go to a restaurant and after ordering your meal, which says on the menu, it's $19.95 for whatever, chicken, something, steak, pick whatever, it doesn't matter. It's as though then the chef would come out and say to you, the meat was a little hard and I had to work harder to make it more tender for you. We actually marinated that meat longer. And so I know I said it was 1995, but today I have to charge you 2295 because I had to work harder on that, right? It's as though, you know, we've all been on a flight uh, where we've taken off from our, 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 our city of departure to arrive in the destination. And we've all been late in the destination while we've flown in a circle over the airport for whatever reason, you know, you could be, it could be thunderstorms, it could be snow, it could be fog, it could be traffic. If you, everybody who's flown into JFK or LaGuardia, uh, particularly in July or August has had this experience. Um, and so your flight is delayed by an extra 20 minutes or 25 minutes or an hour before you actually land. And then the pilot would come to the front of the plane and say, I know you only paid, uh, you already paid for your ticket, uh, but it took us longer to get here. And, uh, and I had to really work hard on the landing because you know, it was foggy. So I'm gonna have to charge you a little bit more. That is ultimately what the billable hour says. The billable hour, you know, and I learned this from another gentleman, the billable hour is about inputs but the clients don't care about inputs. The clients care about outputs. Now, I'm not saying that how long it takes you to complete a task, a legal task is irrelevant. Of course it's relevant. It's relevant to your day. It's relevant to your schedule. It's relevant to your staffing decisions. It's relevant to the resources you need. It is not irrelevant. It is relevant, but as a billing mechanism, it is a very, very poor proxy for the actual value that you deliver to your client. And in point of fact, when you use the billable hour, you only hit the value accidentally. You will either undervalue your services and leave money on the table, or you will overvalue your services and rip off your client, but you will never hit the button. Okay, so you wrote an article for the OBA in 2018. <clears throat> and I'm proud to say that I commissioned you to write that article because I was at the time with the law practice management section of the Ontario Bar Association. And this article was called, uh, it's still online, A Brief History of Conduit Law. I should check it out again. Yeah, it's, it's a really interesting piece. In this article, you wrote, the driving force behind the concept propelling conduit law was the idea that in the legal industry as a knowledge-based business, we should be liberated from both time and place. So I understand place. And this is all, you know, what this whole digital office, paperless office concept is about. And uh, of course, conduit law, uh, is attractive to lawyers because they can work from home perhaps or from anywhere else because you know before you had to come to the client's office because the files were there now the files are in the cloud i'm making some assumptions here but i think those are safe assumptions about conduit law so i understand liberation from place and i've personally benefited from this liberation this was why I started my own practice in 2011, 10 years ago, 
because I wanted to be liberated from a particular place. Although I must admit, I'm back into the office uh, for the last several years because uh, I discovered dual monitors and that became another anchor, you know. So even liberation from, uh, from a place is questionable to me now. And I really enjoy the office here. I have a plant, but I don't understand liberation from time. And I, I ask you to explain this to me. I understand that it's related to your war on the billable hour. And I understand that it's related to, the, uh, uh, to properly calibrating outputs and to properly calibrating pricing to outputs to the value that you deliver to the client. But uh, inputs are named inputs for a reason. There are no outputs without inputs. You have to go in to go out, right? So I understand liberation from time as liberation from inputs. And for now, I don't see how lawyers can not spend time or at least um, how lawyers can fix the time in which they have to complete a task. I understand the difference between services and products and and I understand that products are are much more liberated from time perhaps this is why you started a watch brand because perhaps ultimately at uh, you know at, at the bottom of your heart you really want to make products because they provide the ultimate liberation from place and time right compared to services but please explain with this background intro please explain how do you liberate from time? How do you liberate a lawyer from time? So I think it's a great question. And, 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 and this is why this, even this entire subject is, is very compelling and why, you know, I mean, after at least 15, 16 years of having this dominate my professional uh, work, it, it still remains compelling to me. Um, I think there's two things that I'd want to talk about. First of all, um, we do need to talk about inputs, but we also have to have a proper discussion about what the inputs are, uh, if we're going to have that discussion. And let's park that for a moment. But, you know, the liberation from time can be a number of different things. And we've experienced this now through the pandemic, particularly for white collar knowledge based workers who've all decamped from the office to come home and work from uh, work from home, underlining the point of place. Um, but Clients come to us for solutions. Broadly speaking, I think that that falls into three categories. What's the solution? They come to us um, because of our knowledge, our background and our knowledge, uh, what we've learned, the books, the, the black letter law. They come to us for our experience, the amount of time that we've been doing work and, and, and how we are able to marshal resources uh, to solve that problem. And then I think the third thing that they come to us for is judgment. And uh, I've never really been able to properly define judgment in the context of legal services, but I often put the three of them together and put it into some kind of a melange. But none of those are dependent on working nine to five. None of those are dependent on working a specific, uh, a, a, a specific time frame inside your, inside the day. Yes. If you've got to file a document with the court, obviously you must conform to their schedule. And so you're, you're in that case, you're neither liberated from time nor place because you need to show up uh, at the courthouse at a certain time to deliver a document. Um, but the solution around that, the factum that you write or the contract that you write or the solution that you put together, that can be put together at two o'clock in the morning as easily as it's put together at two o'clock in the afternoon. And that's entirely dependent on, you know, when you are ready to do the work, when you are capable of doing the work, when you are able to uh, interact with clients and witnesses and stakeholders and opposing counsel, all of those things come in together. But none of it has to happen in that particular time frame. And I think that's really what I'm talking about. I, it always struck me as kind of odd, you know, going to the big law firms, um, when you look at the, the, the types of candidates that law schools select for and the type of candidates that law firms select for in the sort of the, the, the larger 
hiring process, um, you know, they tend to be high academic achievers. They tend to have uh, uh, powerful resumes with a lot of interesting experience and they're hired for all of that. Um, but what the billable hour says is take all of that and now chain yourself to a desk uh, during these business hours. And I just think that when you're delivering legal services, it, it's just not that mechanical. It is not that clerical. Uh, there are things that we can automate. There is certainly technology that we can bring to bear. But when you look at that uh, triumvirate of knowledge, experience, and judgment that's brought together, that is not time dependent. So you're not denying that time is an input in uh, legal services. You are talking more about liberation from business hours then, or you're talking about liberation from synchronicity. And uh, this concept is f familiar, quite familiar to me because of my uh, software development background. Some of the greatest software projects such as, for example, Linux, which is at the heart of all Android phones or mm -hmm. other open source projects, which all practically most uh, well-known uh, software products used to be. Some of these greatest uh, software projects were developed across different time zones without any office, without any FaceTime, with people using asynchronous tools such as emails, no meetings, no Zoom, nothing. So I was a witness to how those projects were built because I contributed to some of these projects and I watched some of these projects. The two main tools that programmers used to build Linux, for example, were email for email lists where they just posted messages to each other and discussed things and a source control system or document control system as lawyers probably know it better where they simply tracked versions of source code right so people know which source code is current and which is, is not right so those two things complete asynchronicity no facetime nothing like that and i understand what you're saying when a lawyer should be liberated from place and synchronicity or business hours yep. uh, uh if if this is uh what you're driving at then but I'm, if I'm we if if we explore the time the actual time concept itself then we also you know the question is is what time are we paying for so i often would trot out the example of uh of, and i don't practice tax law which is what gives me license to uh, use a tax example uh but you know you can imagine a scenario um, where there is a discrepancy, the, uh, there's a problem with the tax authorities, client comes to you with that problem. You know, you can imagine a scenario where um, you have a fifth year associate, uh, reasonably competent, reasonable amount of experience, but let's just say at the beginning of their career still. Uh, and then a 25 year partner with the, confronted with the same problem, the same issue, the same price tag, the same amount of money at risk. Okay, so they go to the young associate and the young associate starts spooling up the research machine, right? And spending time to come to a conclusion. The 25 year partner may already have the solution in their head because they've confronted this before. Their experience line is significantly longer than the experience line of the five year associate. Consequently, the length of that experience line informs their judgment line. And, um, and I use this as a magical example. I'm sure this never happens in real life. But in one hour, that tax partner with 25 years experience is able to draft a perfect letter responding to the tax authority, solving the problem. So the associate spent Let's just give it a number. Let's just say the associate spent 20 hours solving the problem and came to the same conclusion. And the partner spent one hour solving the problem, coming to the same conclusion, giving the client the same result. Mm -hmm. How do we charge that person? And what's the input? Is the input just the 20 hours that the associate spent that week? or the one hour that the partner spent that week? Or is the input a 25 year career that funnels off over the horizon? 
What is the input? What's the right number? And let's take it a little further. Let's assume it's, uh, it's the interpretation of a part of the tax code. And you have client A comes to the firm and client A is a mom and pop small business. And the problem with their interpretation of that part of the act is this big, okay? Because their business is this big and their revenue is this big. And consequently the tax problem is this big. And on the same day, a global multinational company comes to you and has the exact same problem with the exact same interpretation of the same provision of the tax act, but their problem is this big. So we've spent one hour solving the problem or 20 hours solving the problem in the hands of one client, that might be a, a $10,000 problem. In the hands of the other client, it might be a $10 million problem. Mm -hmm. And while most of this story is entirely fabricated, I think we can agree that you know, when global multinationals have tax problems, it's in the millions of dollars. And when mom and pop uh, businesses have tax problems, it can be significantly less. So what's the value proposition yeah. in solving that problem? Well, it's always going to be in the value will be determined in the eyes of the client. But when right. you come at it with the billable hour, the value, the first base point for determining the value is in the eyes of the effort expended by the lawyer. And even in my example, you've got two different, two, two equal solutions, but delivered by two different lawyers uh, where the effort is different, at least in terms of billable hours. And so the input is different. Well, one thing is clear, pricing products is uh, much neater than pricing professional services. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious if this is why you started a watch brand or if there was another reason. And if you want to talk about uh, how it was and where it, where it is now. Yeah, well, don't think that the irony isn't lost on me that somebody who rails against the billable hour and tracking your day in six minute increments goes off and starts a watch company. That, uh, that has been brought to my attention and I, I embrace that irony, but you know, that's me having a foot in two camps, right? We can, we can have two, uh, two different ideas at the same time. Uh, I started, so I started Mission Watch Company together with my partner, Aaron Solomon, and we started this, uh, pardon me for that uh, beeping interruption. We started this uh, uh, business in, I guess, 2018. Um, and really it was an opportunity. It was almost a, almost a professional palate cleanser. It was an opportunity to do something different. It was an opportunity to get away from services. Your intuition on this is 100% accurate. It was an opportunity to look at, uh, look at the, how we could provide something valuable, but that people would like uh, and hopefully buy and create a marketplace for, or a step into a marketplace where we could sell our goods, but actually selling a good. And the idea of going through the creative process of, uh, of coming up with a mission watch company and then coming up with our product and, you know, literally taking out pads of paper uh, and, and trying to design this thing on a blank sheet. And let's be very clear, uh, neither of us are industrial designers. Uh, so a lot of that was, uh, was you know, uh, fairly remedial, I can say at, at the beginning in terms of what our designs started, looked like at the beginning. Uh, but then we went through an educational process and, uh, and a lot of that was informed by my legal background, how to start a company. I've been advising entrepreneurs basically since the beginning of my career. Um, and, uh, and then it, it sort of took on a life of its own, if I can put it that way. So uh, what is it like now? Are you uh, pricing your watch in a way that satisfies you? Have you been liberated from time and place in, uh, in your watch business? 
Or wow. are there echoes of professional services still, even in the product business that you're engaged in? No, I don't think there are any echoes of professional services. So, you know, we are, we're subject to market pricing. We're subject to uh, market conditions. Uh, the watches are uh, designed in Canada, uh, but the parts are sourced on a global basis. So we have had to uh, dip our toe in, in, uh, into the global marketplace for goods. Uh, obviously we're a tiny company. Uh, but we're still part of that massive supply chain. Consequently, even at a very small level, Mission Watch Company has had to deal with the pandemic. Uh, we're slightly delayed the mission. Our third watch is coming out. Um, in fact, this morning, I can say that we received the confirmation. We should expect delivery. Uh, should be the first week of April, give or take. Um, but that's been slightly delayed. And part of that delay has been a cause of the disruption in the supply chain on a global basis. Yeah. Um, we've, pricing has been very, very interesting and dynamic, looking at the marketplace for automatic watches versus the marketplace for quartz watches. Our first watch was an automatic watch. It's at a higher price point. Our second watch is a quartz uh, at an entirely different price point and also able to uh, be marketed to a different, um, a different consumer. Um, it's been very interesting. And, you know, you know, one of the interesting things, at least where there's a little bit of overlap between uh, designing and, and uh, manufacturing and selling watches and the legal industry is uh, both of them are very old professions. They've been around for a very, very long time. And in some respects are very constrained by tradition. I mean, people do make some pretty uh, absurd looking watches, but basically we're, luck we're stuck with a single form. Uh, you know, a round watch face uh, with markers for 12 hours, whether those are numerals or indices is kind of up to you. But then there's this creative process of how can you come up with something uh, that is authentic and has some originality to it and is true to your vision, um, but ensure that it's not a copy of anybody else's and yet still be stuck inside that paradigm of a wristwatch. It's a fascinating challenge and it's a fascinating problem to solve. Well, Peter, I wanna thank you for this interview. I just looked at uh, time and I realized how fast it flew uh, speaking and listening to you and speaking with you. I, uh, we even managed to fit a little bit of a debate into our interview. So I can't wait for our listeners to, to watch that. Thank you so much, Peter. It's been really interesting. I can't wait to uh, hear about your third watch uh, coming out from a Mission Watch Company. I'm thankful to you for all of your thoughts about the uh, billable hour, about your war on the billable hour. I've always been interested in your thoughts about it. Thank you so much. Well, thank you very much. Спасибо. <laughs> thank you. <laughs>